Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice, giving you guys a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. So let's get going with today's episode of the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. So this is a final episode of season four and really want to thank you all for listening this past few seasons. I, I enjoy podcasts. I'm an audiobook guy, but podcasts, I binge on them. And the podcasts I enjoy most are people who are experts but are totally approachable about the subject matter. And I think, I think we've tried to do that with almost everything that pertains to movement. And I hope you guys have enjoyed it. You know, for this one, Greg, we're going to do something a little different. The guys behind the scenes have put together some highlights from this season. We had some really great guests this past season. So I think if, you know, you're just joining us or you've been listening, maybe uh, this is going to be something pretty unique, being able to just kind of pick apart some of the great uh, great things that our guests provided for us. And, you know, that's a little different. You know, you got on shoes, but you went sleeveless as usual, but you are wearing shoes, so that's a little different for you too. <laughs> you've got you've to stretch your boundaries. And, guys, when, when we have a subject matter – about physical movement, our physical bodies. The one thing we know is your body's not going to change if you don't challenge it. Well, neither will you mind. And and I'd like to think that our guests help us broaden and, and stretch the way we think and talk about movement. And it's not scripted. I'm, I'm a very often, by the time we get halfway through the episode, I'm very often surprised. When are you ever scripted? <laughs> It's not necessary. It just <laughs> flows. But about halfway through every episode, I'm really almost enjoying the ride. And and you surprise me. The guests surprise me. And I surprise me sometimes, too. <laughs> you surprise me uh, pretty much every day. So <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening. Enjoy this highlight. And uh, we'll see you next season. Episode 43, Free to be Pain-Free with Dr. Kelly Sturette. People always want to know what's wrong with me, but they never ask, what am I doing wrong? And, and that's what Lee and I are aiming so much of our message at. And with your access to, to these different ways to speak, I honestly think getting the Western brain to quit asking healthcare what's wrong with me, because they'll always have a product, procedure, or service they'll sell you for something wrong yeah. with you. What are you doing wrong? You're sleeping like crap. You're not hydrated. You're not aware that you've got a balance problem. That, those three things alone can give you a bad experience in the gym for three or four years. I was just on a handled the CrossFit games. And I asked everyone in the crowd, you know, in the stands, I was like, how many people would describe yourselves as pain-free? And like one hand goes up out of a hundred. And I was like, okay, so <laughs> let's start with that. Right. Which, you know, which means a couple things. One is that pain is, is a very typical human experience. And that means that we can actually wrap our heads around a little bit more, right? That we, one is, okay, we don't need to fear this. This is a common issue. And we're being very disingenuous around should we, how do we think about helping someone self-soothe or unburden them? I really like that phrase. And what I'll tell you is first and foremost, yes, you know, uh, our friend Perry Nicholson, pain is a request for change. I love that language. Second, is that we've been very disingenuous about helping people to solve that in a in a better way. And I solve, alleviate, attenuate, self-suit, whatever, whatever the language is not going to trigger you here in, in the pain, pain game. But people have been reaching for ibuprofen. 
opiates are now coming back up, right? We've seen um, people reaching for bourbon. They're reaching for THC. They will do anything to reach for something that takes that away. So if we don't address it in a, in a more in a more, let's say, holistic or wholesome way that really helps them to, to manage it and, and, and take it and get the brain to stop caring about it, then shame on us because people are doing that for themselves by just putting Band-Aid after Band-Aid on, right? Mm-hmm. So what I am things that I'm a big fan of is saying, hey, look, you know, we hear and know, and you all have been saying this forever, like we don't treat the man, we don't treat the scan, we treat the man, right? That your MRI is going to say, you know, you are a human being who's been going hard in the paint. But if I have one person who has your problem is pain free, then that outlier sort of negates the entire hypothesis that this is a pain generator or can always be. A or it's a hundred percent structural problem. That's right. And what I'll tell you is I, um, you know, I've sat in surgeries with my NFL friends and their knees look like garbage cans. There's gigantic loose bodies and they have no meniscus and they have bony outgrowths and they look like their knee looks like a garbage can and they don't have any pain on that knee. So, you know, clearly there is some top down processing that is going on that the brain says, hey, this has not arise to a level where I need to get you to pay attention to it yet. Because, you know, fun- functionality is messed up, right? Can't, can't bend my knee, can't do what I want to do. That's a, that's a big deal. So the first thing that we're, we're trying to tell people is I'm like, hey, look, let's see if we can desensitize it first. And sometimes that's just simple. That's grab your percussion gun. You know, let's do some contract, relax on it. Let's change your breathing. Let's get some sleep. Let's drink some water, right? Let's, you know, let's cup, let's voodoo floss, let's scrape. And by the way, all of those things can be done by you safely at home without a physical therapist, without a chiro, without a doctor, which for me is revolutionary, right? I mean, I'm like, oh, we can remove a medical practitioner from you and and your problem, by the way, that's already there. You're just dealing with bourbon and ibuprofen. Yeah, already. and let me so interrupt you right we, here. I think people can take that great advice, and in four sessions or a few weeks, it hasn't made a difference. Then we'd be the first to say, "I'd quit doing that too and start going doing this." But but Lee and I have noticed this when we get to an FMS workshop, and this goes back to the early days. And the question always comes up: If the movement hurts them, we call it pain. Well, what do you think pain is? And we are such a, you said desensitize. We are such a creature of comfort culture that anything uncomfortable is often perceived as pain. And so when you say desensitize, I actually think you're rephrasing what Lee and I have, that that there's going to be some, if you're out of shape, you're going to be sore getting in shape. If you're in rehab, Dry needling doesn't feel good. Neither does cupping or scraping. So there, there's a lot of discomfort that you're going to have to face. And we have to separate the discomfort of learning to move better, the learning process, with actual the inflammatory or mechanical body or response that we call pain. So when the 20% of the people follow your advice and get better right away, I actually think you're spot on. You desensitize them to this physical life. You were in an environment that you weren't fit enough to be in. You're supposed to hurt, <laughs> right? First first day of the summer, you're walking on gravel. It doesn't feel good. <laughs> but part part of the Amen. struggle, and- but part of the struggle would be, you know, what is the underlying cause of the pain? And you have to we have to fix we have to give them some insight into 
to dealing with that as well as is is doing all the stuff to desensitize it. And then on top of that, is it their behaviors? Is it something in their lifestyle that creates right. these these right. issues? Let's start with the fact that the human being is the most sophisticated structure in the known universe. Your brain is the most complicated structure in the known universe attached to a physiology, the rest of your body, that is also equally the most sophisticated structure in the known universe. So combined, your mind, your brain, and your body is really complex. So right now, we have, I have a bunch of athletes at the Olympics. And if you dropped yourself into the Women's World Cup final on the mountain bike, you would perish in pain. You would just perish. You would just burn up. Like you couldn't even handle. And that, by the way, is like a Tuesday, right? That's not even a thing for these women. And so what, you know, clearly your genetics, your previous experience, your, your the arousal. You know, I mean, like I remember, you know, you know, my I had fallen on a rock in Chile at the world championships where I met my wife. I was carrying a raft down a, um, a slippery slope, fell and like put a, like a, a boulder into my hip and blew, right? And I was like, oh, I broke my back. And then my cute future wife walked past and that was gone. In two seconds, I was like, I'm fine. Totally fine. And uh, sometimes you got to blow up. Processing. <laughs> That's right. So this process, top down processing is really important. But bottom up also matters. And what we are seeing, and I agree with you guys, is that we have an environment organism mismatch very much, which we are talking about. In fact, Julie and I are working on a book right now called Built to Move, which is really putting the heart back into supple leopard, which is let's walk more, let's manage sleep, let's appreciate that eating more micronutrients and working on balance and sitting on the floor. All of those things aggregate and work synergistically together to make a more durable, resilient human being. So that like, like we're all want to go climb Everest, but we should all just get to base camp first, right? Yeah. So let's not talk about diet and exercise. Let's talk about the, th- do you have sunlight on your body? Yes or right. no? I mean, and the answer is no, you know, you don't. So there's some type one errors in all of our thinking. So we have to address that. And it's, it's complicated. And simultaneously from the bottom up, Desensitize is, is this crappy word because simple, like, you know, I, I just came back from Junior Olympic water polo tournament with my daughters and some of the girls were like, oh, yeah, something hurts. I've got shoulder rabies. You know, I don't say cancer. I say rabies. Gray, you know, you don't have shoulder cancer yes. for me. I have shoulder rabies. <laughs> Bone cancer. And, um, yeah. Because I, I feel like it's even crazier to say you have shoulder rabies. People are like, that's a thing. I'm like, no, it's not a thing, but you can look it up. But, you know, quickly I can get that kid 100 percent feeling better. In like two minutes, and I'm like, so what do you think it was? Well, your brain was like, pay attention here. You're super stressed, right? So when I say desensitize, the point of desensitization is not to let you go back. It's so that you aren't interrupted by that signal so that you can go do something important like move or exercise. All right, our our new word is resensitize. Resensitize. Because stupid shit is supposed to hurt and smart shit ain't supposed to hurt. So let's resensitize. Resensitize. Then resensitize. So secondarily, I'm like, hey, let's decongest. Maybe you're a hot, swollen, puffy, congested, inflamed mess. And at things like compression and elevation and movement, those are ways to decongest the tissue. Because what we know is that if we have a super hyperinflamed tissue, that can be sending signals to my brain to pay attention to this, right? And so, and by the way, if I improve your physiology by getting the groceries out or, you know, getting the garbage out and bringing the groceries in, oftentimes 
that could be addressing this underlying tissue dysfunction that is preventing you from doing what you want to do, whether it's movement or generation of force, absorption of force, right? You will, it's difficult to load a pissed off tendon maximum. Right. Just that's a true statement, right? But all of a sudden the tissue is, has better hydration. It's not as congested locally. You're getting better turnover, right? All of those things that are important around our lymphatics or et cetera, et cetera. You know, we see that that sometimes can ameliorate or attenuate people's pain symptoms. So then we were like, well, can we pump that thing full of blood? We call that reperfuse. And so we'll on something like, oh, meet Mr. Blood Flow Restriction, which has been used in Japan for about a thousand years, right? Through Katsu and we've done it. And, and so suddenly I'm like, wow, you can, do, you can get on an assault bike or stay in a pain-free range or we can do bodybuilding-like activities. Let's get you a huge pump and then let's go move or go train this thing. And then lastly, I would put on there is that we are trying to restore their native range of motion. Because what we have found, as you all have found, is that people who often show up with a painful movement, right? I didn't say a painful tissue, a painful movement, movement with pain, lack their ability to express or access their full normative range, their baseline physiology, their normal range of motion. And so oftentimes we just restore that for whatever reason, the brain's like, well, this is different. And that can start with breathing, getting someone exactly. to actually expand their rib cage or take a belly breath for the first time. The brain's like, well, this that's not painful. And look, we're moving again. So, you know, once we, once we just do that, and I haven't even talked about your crappy training or your diet, which I haven't talked, I'm just like, look at these things that we have access that don't require skilled intervention. Let's take a crack at those first. And what we've seen is we've been able to move the ball a long way. So that's how we're trying to reframe pain, that there's a ton on your plate. Episode 44, how to prep for a pandemic in order to become healthy and fight off any, you know, problem coming at you. Now we're, we're talking about COVID today, right? But next year it's going to mm -hmm. be the common cold, right. the flu, right? The best way to do that is to be be active, be physically active mm -hmm. and have have a good diet. Don't smoke, right? Those are the things. We can't assume that by telling a group of the our society be more physically active that that's just gonna help well, because it's like telling somebody to eat right well what do i do no I've, I've i've i'm seriously ready to sort of tackle this at the consumer interface because if you stand up in front of a third grade class and say you should all read more you would be absolutely right and it ain't gonna happen mm -hmm. okay and most of the u.s is coming at fitness at a third grade level because I've heard the way the media talks about health and fitness. I've heard the way um, some sportscasters talk about health and fitness. I've heard some way, you know, school administrators talk about health and fitness. They don't know what the F they're talking about. They really don't. You, they, they don't even know how to begin to do this. Recommending that kids play 60 minutes a day is not a good thing to say. Create an environment where you got to stop them from playing 60 minutes a day and you figured it out. It's that's that's where everybody is issuing this advice like it's an academic situation. I would like to set up feedback loops, and that's what we try to do in our, our PE class. Most of us think because we've got a phone in our hands and that phone is attached to Google's brain, we can learn to do things. No, you do things to learn. That's the bottom line. And if you would try to get up off the floor, you'll know if you want to get some issues handled or not. And if you can get up off the floor and you can walk brisk, then I'd say, might want to try some jogging, might want to try some swimming, might want to try some cycling or something else that seems both safe and acceptable mm -hmm. 
to you, but most of us think we can consume enough information not to make a mistake. Hell, that's what learning is. So yeah, try I, to do something, but set the bar low, especially if you know you got movement, pain, and balance issues. I think it goes one step further, Gray, because I think we can't even convince people to do what you just described. So what, what is the barrier right now to getting people to take that step? Do you know what I think it is? I want to convert it to story. I honestly think that there are pockets of people, and National Geographic does documentaries on us, calls them blue zones. There are pockets of people that easily live to 100 years old. Okay, there as they age, they don't retire. They just get more manageable jobs for the eighty-year-old, and it's this this gentle life across a much longer lifespan with just some simple natural culture. We don't eat more than we need. We don't consume more than we need. Everybody wakes up and knows they got to do something today. The kids play till they can work, and then they work real hard. And then as they get old, they work a little bit less. And what we're what we're trying to do is is outthink this thing. We all know what we need to do. Adults don't need to have that much sugar, right? Kids don't either, but it's a great motivating tool, so use it when you got to. But we don't need as much sugar as, as we're eating. We, we don't need to be sleeping like we're doing, and we're way dependent on stimulants. And that just tells you, you don't have a really good well to draw, draw from. It's going to be toxic. Yeah, but how do we make the ch- That's the thing. This is a cultural shift. So here's what shift. you do. You issue the information, and you create blue zones. Every time we've ever had a chance to go into an NFL team and sort of create a different dichotomy between sports medicine and strength conditioning, we set up a little bit better culture. And it filtered a little bit better, and it had a little bit better stats. And so all I'm saying is, issue the information, Early adopters will prove your point, and the other people will do what they say, not what you say. So if you're an innovator of something, you're not going to change the herd. The herd is going to continue running in whatever direction. A few early adopters will spin off, create subcultures. They'll be successful, and people will copy them just because they're doing cool shit. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it goes. So I don't, think, I don't think we can turn the herd. A lot of people are going to go off the cliff, and some aren't. And well, the, the, the cautionary hope- tale is I'd watch them. Well, the hope— <laughs> is that, again, what we're talking about today can shine the light on it, but it's not being talked about enough. I mean, I think hopefully the people that are listening to us today, the few people that are probably listening to us today, will maybe take this. And, and But the few people listening to us today are probably already saying that to the people they come it in is, contact with. It is, with. but well, bad cultures die with the people that practice them the hardest. I think, you know, I think obviously a lot of our listeners are the you know, healthcare professional, yeah. the fitness professional, the person who is, you know, possibly just trying to better themselves. And so with all of this information, I think the conversation of health or the importance of it is, is like you say, it's like a loop. And maybe your insertion point to the information is just different. If you're suddenly concerned of COVID-19 and you're suddenly like, my immune system needs to get better. Well, that's your insertion point into the feed, into the loop of information where, all right, what aspects of my health are going to raise my immune system? If your number one concern is I need to lose weight, not realizing that it's all about your immune system, et cetera, et cetera, then that's your insertion point where what can I do to lose weight? Maybe I need to start walking. So it's all about that different figuring out who the consumer, the person is, and as the professional potentially, you know, where your insertion point is to figure out how to get that information. Yeah, there's got to be some sort of tipping point. And I think if we look, as Greg described, the herd, well, we were doing a lot of physical activities in the classroom, physical education, 
years ago, hundreds of years ago. That was part of the thing. Mm-hmm. But we all know physical education is being cut out of school systems. I mean, shoot, they're cutting out of reading and writing in the school systems. There's no in certain states, there's no standards that you've got to meet for reading, writing, and arithmetic in schools. Mm-hmm. So there's a tipping point in our society. And maybe this, maybe we're in the middle of this tipping point. I think so. We, we won't know for, for another 10, 15, 20 years, but maybe we this is where we are right now. Well, let me let me try to encapsulate this concept. We all advocate activity and even exercise as almost a medicine because we're not talking about how it enhances your performance. Mm-hmm. We're talking about how it fosters your durability, right? So, we quit talking about exercise for the fun of moving, like playing soccer on the weekend or rock climbing just because the rock is there. We're actually advocating exercise as medicine, okay? Now, Hippocrates said, let your food be your medicine and your medicine be your food. The more natural you can keep your lifestyle, the less you'll need medicine other than the food you eat. I think the same way about movement. But if you, if you truly know that you're not a really healthy or fit version of yourself, then assume you have five or six movement-related risk factors that say if you get after it, you're going to be knocked off of this path or humbled or injured in a way that's going to take you longer. So the cautionary tale of the tortoise and the hare is, I know you think you could do this faster, but you are two generations removed from a physical culture that knew themselves, uh, and we know this by the way we, we took military and stuff like that. But my whole point is, if exercise is going to be expected to be a medicine, to get you out of a debt, not to just offer you a buffer, but to get you out of a debt, treat it like a friggin' medicine. Dose it, because now we know that a medicine, the, the dosage can cure or kill you, and it's all in the, in the dosage of that. So all we've ever really tried to advocate is we are not recommending that you move often if you don't move well. But if you don't move well, there's a lot of things you can do often to get there. Episode 45, Prioritizing Your Rest and Recovery. Sleep is related, and that's important for people to understand, related to a lot of these chronic problems we have, whether it's diabetes, cardiovascular problems, pain, yes. performance, reaction time, cognitive. Um, well, well, I think if we just had to break down sleep, there's, there's a, a very simplistic way to look at it. There's light sleep, which is basically you're on deck. You're getting ready to do something. That's either reorganize your brain or repair your body. Right, So deep sleep, I think you're going to probably get into your tissue repair. And REM, you're going to run a lot of these neural circuits and probably flush a lot of that bad memory out, hold on to the things that are meaningful and good, um, resolve some inner voices, conflict, whatever. But basically, uh, light sleep is something you got to go through to get to either deep sleep or REM sleep, and both have restorative effects. One probably has more brain benefits, and one has more body benefits. And Unless you get the full cycle, you're not going to get the best of both. Waking with a fresh brain and a tired body ain't going to do you any good, and the other way around ain't going to do you much good either. So, But that's kind of the point I was trying to make is it's the chicken or the egg. Yep. Chronic problems basically don't allow you to sleep well. Well, not good sleep potentially will lead to chronic problems because some of the hormonal impacts you get with sleep, if you're not getting good sleep, one of the things, it's, it increases your hunger. And how you get a good night's sleep is extremely important. But the other thing you talk about, we talk about quality of sleep. As long as you're getting the certain cycles, 
in your sleep, you meet those minimum cycles, whether that's six hours or eight hours or nine hours, and most people, most of the data will say seven to eight hours in the adult population is where you will typically get those number of cycles. Now, all the other things that you can talk about, Gray, on, well, what's going to make you not get those cycles even though you got nine hours of sleep? Exactly. All right. Well, let me let me do a few because a great way, and I've done this with a lot of patients, and it's it works way more often than it doesn't. Hard chargers, athletes, people who are going to suck it up and go. I'm like, all right, let's name the things that can kill you first if you don't do them. I'm probably going to pick breathing. If you decide to stop breathing, that's going to kill you quickest. If you decide to stop drinking, that can kill you probably in about three days, maybe four or five, depending on how hydrated you are going in. Not sleeping. Uh, if it doesn't kill you in seven to 10 days, it'll make you batshit crazy. Somebody else is going to kill you. Okay. You can go a lot longer without eating or exercising than you can those three things. So if you've got a sleep problem, the very first thing I'm going to check is, do you have a nutrient deficiency, a hydration deficiency, or a breathing deficiency? And when we look at sleep apnea and the association with obesity and sleep apnea, we, I've, I've had three broken noses. I got sleep apnea because of a deviated septum. And it's way better than it was because I've done some stuff from my airway. But if we've got bad breathing, you can't have good sleeping. So now all of a sudden we're back at breathing, right? So if I just go through the, the cycles of your life that can kill you first, if we don't fix those, your movement, your fitness, your goal that has a physical manifestation ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. In biology is your stress recovery cycle. Every animal has to eat, sleep, and move, okay? And so if we take it back to that basic, Lee, do you think you're overstressed or under-recovered? Because if you're not an optimal version of yourself, and I don't care what you say, I'm going to test them both, but are you under-recovered or overstressed? Because most of the people that tell me they're overstressed don't look physically overstressed. Right. And I they think look that's, very physically comfortable. But I think part of the problem that we have, we talk about the general person out there. Or the, oh, let's just say, okay, the person going to work out, have a hard workout today. How do they know that? How, well, are the, how can they become more aware of where their tank is? Is it, am I under-recovered or am I just overstressed? Well, and a lot of people don't know what that is. And so always assume the most conservative, safest play. Assume you're under-recovered. And if you can't recover from this, you don't know how to recover, okay? If you sit most of the day and exercise very little and you still have broken sleep, then why would you add stress to your life when you can't even recover from this bullshit existence of low activity? So my whole point is, if you can't fix your sleep just by doing the, the top 10 things on the internet to fix your sleep, which are all reduce your tech, reduce your social interaction, do something um, to amp you down, don't drink a lot, don't eat a lot, avoid the acid reflux just by not eating, you know. So do the top 10 and those, things. And those things are before you go to sleep. Those are like the things you want to do. They a call it hours. sleep hygiene and it makes a lot of sense, right? right? You know, it's not like I've got to start at 12 o'clock in the afternoon if I'm exactly. going to try to sleep at 10 o'clock. Well, you can o'clock. quit drinking caffeine about then because well, that's right. one of the things. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's right. I mean, I, th- I think those are the simple recommendations that you need to try and, and prepare yourself to But sleep. that's the question I ask. Lee, if you don't know how to answer that question, the first thing I will do is figure out a way to watch your sleep and see if you can prove it without adding any extra stress. And if you can, then you've actually buffered 
the stress load that you're getting ready to do. Meaning when I do tell you to start confronting your movement problem, or we're going to start some serious rehab now that you're out of your cast, you will be ready to recover from the stress that I'm going to drop on you. If I overstress you, we'll see a dip in your recovery. If I understress you, we won't see your movement change. So my whole point is, if sleep is more important than movement, because it can kill you quicker if you don't do it, right? Then fix your sleep at the current stress level you're at. And if you can't, you got a healthcare problem. And if you can, now you're ready for me to throw some stress at you. And that's on me to dose it so you rebound correctly. And all of a sudden, it's a self-facilitating cycle. You start getting up a little bit earlier, you start exercising a little bit more, you're going to go to sleep way better at 1030 than you were before because you still got this physical energy that thousands and thousands and thousands of generations of DNA said, you didn't move enough today. And so you're restless at 11 o'clock in bed. So take a walk after dinner, get up early and just move around a little bit more, but that's the load. That's it. But if you're not even already sleeping good, exercise ain't going to make you feel better today. Episode 46, permission to move your DNA with Katie Bowman. Why are you never on the floor? You know, like where, where, where culturally was this decision to sort of, I sleep on the floor. I sleep on the floor for all the reasons that we're talking about, because sleeping on the floor is a movement that mobilizes the body in all these ways that now without that environment, we have to use a tremendous amount of exercise and supplementation. I'm like, as a biomechanist, like my sort of aligning characteristic is efficiency or, or maybe it's just a Katie Bowman thing. It might be like, I I'm drawn to that because I like efficiency and the idea of me adding 90 minutes a day to do corrective exercises that I could sleep through all night long, by by just sleeping on the floor and getting all that mobilization. So like, I think there's a lot of people who want to step out of seeing exercise as a self-contained thing. Where does the phenomenon of exercise sit in the phenomenon of like biology is, is really where I ended up because I think that's cutting to the chase for a lot of people. Like, like yes. it seems like a big step. Like we went from, you know, lifting all these segments, like it's all about functional exercise, you know, and then you got to get functional and then like we keep stepping out, but I'm like, let's just, let's take the smallest and the biggest perspective so that everyone can sort of, figure out how to slide that scale. And not everyone wants to sleep on the floor, but I think if a lot of people knew that ditching, you know, a, a big puffy pillow at the behind their head um, or changing their sleep surface or sitting on the ground instead of a chair, if they knew how much that impacted this otherwise very expensive, seemingly outside of their daily life thing, um, corrective exercises, if they saw the relationships, they would just opt for the easier, simpler, less expensive, more time efficient thing to consume. Like they would opt for it. So like, that's, that's the, that's the direction I've started to supplement my more specific alignment stuff with, because I think both are needed together. No, I'm so glad to hear you say that. And most of my colleagues are surprised at how little I exercise. I, uh, I, chop and split wood. I taught myself how to do traditional archery this winter. I love stand-up paddleboards. So I love playing and biologically speaking, play has a role in the development of what we do, not just in childhood, but adults will recreate and play usually in a new direction that they'll go. And, and calling it exercise sometimes sucks 
all the fun out of it. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to number one, compliment you on the, on the way you're bringing that message about, but even more so you're living exactly what you're talking about. And that's a perspective that sometimes we don't often see. I, I enjoy living what I'm talking about because it makes me, it makes me feel more authentic and it makes makes me hold back what I'm getting ready to say a little bit longer and make sure I can consume Mm. it too. This is a perfect time to prove the experiment. You don't have to exercise. You can decomfort your life a little bit and, and have a little bit more cold, have a little bit more heat, have a little bit more, uh, surface variation and it'll actually show. We'll be able to measure it on you. Moving more, um, is sort of uncomfortable. I mean, if you move long enough, you know that like, Training your body to adjust to a new movement habit has a period of discomfort. And um, I, I was just having a conversation with someone else the other day. I'm like, we haven't yet really been able to adjust the language uh, to clarify and, and maybe in even the, the ability to, to pay attention to our own sensations enough to... Um, have specific language on the differences between discomfort and pain. You know, like we tend to perhaps lump a lot of those things together. And since there isn't good language around it yet, and there's not really good teaching language around it yet, or our guiding language where how, like, I guess it's a good experiment for us to go through as practitioners would be like, if I'm running or if I'm challenging myself to do something really hard, I hit walls all the time. You know, I, I get to the point where my body can't do something anymore. I, I experience these as physically uncomfortable sensations. They don't feel good. They're part of why I am stopping, but I have an understanding somewhere inside about the difference between that and when I am in a very injurious scenario or, you know, if I'm touching something really hot, there's not a lot of time for me to contemplate whether or not I should keep touching this hot thing or not. If I load my knee in a way where something bad is about to happen, my body reflectively pulls me out of it. So I think that that space is probably the next teacher space to be explored, um, you know, our education space of how do we help people or ourselves create a new language around that. And then also understand that perception is based on experience of a movement. If your awareness is poor and you have multiple risk factors, it's not if, it's when you're going to have your next problem. And so that's why if we can take that small segment of people off the, the table real quick, most of the general movement meals that you and I would scale and prepare for somebody are going to largely be very, very beneficial. But you got to pull out those people who have a a pretty thick confirmation bias on what they think discomfort is and what they think the body should be able to do. You got to get them out of the group because their perception is driving their behavior and their perception is broken horribly. And so um, you get them, you get them out of the group, and then all of a sudden, the 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 graph goes exactly where you need it to. As a biomechanist, we worry about ankle mobility because we know how vital it is. It's a freaking risk factor to almost every ambulatory thing if you have an asymmetry or limitation. But do we ever consider ankle mobility 
as a sensory deprivation coming up the chain, meaning if you're not using your ankle mobility, what about the tensegrity of your fascial system? What about the stretch, you know, shortening reflex we're going to get? And so with that ankle mobility, you lose an entire slice of sensory pie. Oh yeah, and you don't dorsiflex as well. And I'm almost more worried about the sensory deprivation because every step is there imprinting a habit that you think has a ceiling on it and it doesn't. We'll manipulate an ankle and do something or put you in the old earth shoes that have you almost zero heel or deeper and Mm -hmm. within two weeks the problem's gone. All of these elements need to be sorted out and if perception about the psychology of movement is part of it, then that needs to be on the list with ankles and knees and the hallux and all these things. We're just sort of, we're just slowly, again, we're just slowly, we're on the beginning of movement science. We're not nutritional science. Those vitamin C's you were talking about, that's five, 600 years old. And it seems like it was just the other day, but it's hundreds of years and we're still very early on in the movement science and it's gonna adjust and swing over the next couple hundred years for sure. You want to improve your kettlebell workouts? Indian clubs may just be the missing link. While kettlebells are great at improving strength and power, Indian clubs are great at improving your speed, coordination, balance, and flexibility. Pairing these two can drive positive results across your entire workout. Club swinging is a perfect complement to kettlebell training. When you have compensation and struggle weight training, you often pick up bad form it's almost impossible to get bad form with Indian clubs because those things either move or they're awkward. In the course, we cover classical moves all the way to advanced moves and even show you how they can be used as correctives in your workout. If you want a greater challenge, check out our clubs course at functionalmovement.com. Get 30% off the FMS Introduction to Indian Clubs online course using promo code CLUBCOURSE. That's promo code CLUBCOURSE for 30% off. Offer valid for a limited time only. Episode 47, Unlocking More Strength with Brett Jones. And so drawing things around back to the original question of basically how do you build a monster? How do, how do you build somebody that's really strong? Clear the baseline, get them learning some of these high tension techniques, uh, and that can be a variety of body weight moves, just amplifying your push-up, your plank, um, getting uh, your goblet squat dialed in, getting your get-up dialed in, and getting to kettlebell moves like the swing and the, if overhead pressing is indicated, the, the standing military press and things like that. Um, I, I have yet to not increase somebody's strength and get them headed in the direction that they wanted to go by following that path. Uh, so it's, it's, it, we've kind of almost made it sound like a long process. It's not. And just, and just like with and even the conversation between setting the baseline and clearing the baseline, that's not a long conversation either unless it's complicated by pain or a history of a lot of things. Um, you give me somebody that's been behind a desk for 30 years and they've actually developed some structural adaptation, uh, collapse, T-spine, kyphosis. Yeah, that journey to going overhead is going to be longer, uh, if ever. Uh, and so we may have to change and modify the goals. But the, the goal is always, um, it, I like to have fun. My training's fun. The results I get from my training are fun. But I don't vary my training all the time in order to create fun. The fun is in the process. 
And that was uh, Dr. Ed Thomas is somebody that we've both uh, worked with and, and uh, has been influential. Uh, one of the things he said that has stuck out to me uh, very strongly is I never went to the gym to work out. I went to the gym to learn. When was the last time you approached your kettlebell swing, your press, your deadlift, your whatever as an opportunity to learn? Yeah, you went to practice a skill and somehow the workout was the side effect, not the goal. One of the takeaways, Brett, with what, you know, quoting Dr. Ed Thomas is, to me, I look at that as awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're going to go in there to, you know, in his words, learn. Well, you know, take another approach and go in there and figure out, you know, what's, what you're good at and what you're not good at. And then try to work, work on what you're not good at. But it's that underlying awareness factor that I think a lot of what you can find out in those roadblocks that people are unaware of. Wow, I didn't realize I couldn't do this or couldn't do that. Well, now you know why you're you're maxed out on your deadlift or your squat is because your ankle's locked up and you're just sacrificing Peter to pay Paul. If you have mobility restrictions, you have less proprioception, you don't map yourself, you cannot pattern yourself in the most efficient way. And so uh, that all just keeps coming back around and, and being true. You know, Lee, we were talking earlier and you know, we we focus on these nice light one pound clubs. And to the point of me liking to pick up heavy things, and there are heavier clubs, maces, meals, things of that nature, um, I've got the heavy angle covered. I don't need more heavy in my life. I do enough of that. I need restorative. I need speed. I need coordination. I need something that's great for my joint health, something that's a skill acquisition. I can spend a lifetime trying to get better at some of these basic uh, Indian club moves, and it helps me um, work with people um, in that in that balance, right? Because power, strength that you cannot apply never becomes power. I've and, always called the Indian club sort of the, the upper body equivalent of jump rope. A deadlift won't make you energy store better, and jump rope won't improve your deadlift. But having both gives you every gear in the transmission you'd probably need. But your legs function like pistons. They really do. They store energy like pistons in a linear fashion in most of the time. Now, your, your legs have PNF patterns too, but the way we use our legs is very organized as a piston load. You use your arms like fan blades. So the circular patterns in Indian clubs helps you make the most of your strength training, and doing only one doesn't give you the best of both worlds. So. Well, it's amazing to take a, an over 5,000-year-old implement. <laughs> yeah, which was uh, really, it was more for, uh, it wasn't for training. Correct. The original name is the Indian War Club, and I'm saying in Indian as in from India. Um, in the Hindu and Vedic traditions, in clubs have an over 5,000-year history where the deities in the, in the Hindu and Vedic traditions are always pictured, basically, with a club of some fashion. Now, that could be a heavy club. It could be a smaller club. But yes, these were weapons of war, uh, which is why we want you to be very safe when you're using them. But even how you train, the training of that, if you really think about the, I would say, the traditional moves, are training for protection and fighting, Right. Well, let's be honest. All of our training methods draw back to how we would train to better handle uh, physical confrontation. So, um, Dr. Ed Thomas talks Even about, running. <laughs> <laughs> well, you either need to get to the battle or away from the battle. <laughs> those, those are two very As important Cosgrove things. As Cosgrove said, I either had to learn to fight or run fast, and I'm not that fast. So, <laughs> you, you pick your battles. 
Um, but there, and when you look at the ancient training traditions, uh, there was a martial component, uh, your ability to respond to oppression, uh, aggression appropriately. There was a restorative component because when you're learning how to respond to aggression appropriately and you might be getting knocked around a little bit and pushing your body, you need a way to recover and restore. Mm -hmm. And there was a pedagogical uh, end of things, which is the theoretical body of knowledge that supports the other two. Um, well, we don't have a martial component much anymore. Our martial component now is fitness. Fitness has become our martial art. Not sure uh, that that's the best or most authentic usage of that. And re re restoration has become a cottage industry of all of these products that people use to try to recover from their training with a bad lifestyle. And I was asked on a podcast uh, quite some time ago, they were like, well, what's your favorite recovery strategy? And I'm like, proper programming. Because if I program myself appropriately, I should recover from my training. Now, we, we have to have the lifestyle conversation within that. But if you're, if you're out there in the world and you're constantly figuring out, I don't know how I'm going to recover from my training, um, do less. That's the art of training. That is, that's the art. I the mean, there's a science component, but the art of really training somebody properly is giving them the right program so they do recover so they can do more. I tell everybody that starts with me, this is our starting point, and we no plan survives contact with the enemy. And yes, right now, you are the enemy. <laughs> and we are going to have to adapt this plan as we move forward because I don't know your progression uh, speed. I don't know how you're going to adapt to this. Um, and I don't know if you're going to change those lifestyle things that we talked about. Because if you refuse to hydrate and do the five other things that I need you to do, and you're still trying to figure out how to recover from your training, I'm not going to ask you to do very much. Coming to strength training with inappropriate tension is like trying to learn to punch with a clenched fist. You see most people go from relaxation to contraction in this effortless way. And so lately I've been using Indian clubs to dump tension um, on a day even when I'm not going to get to work out. But definitely on a day when I'm going to work out, I'll pick some of those techniques that just let me sort of loosen up because static stretching isn't the only way to loosen up. There's so many more neural enhancing ways to, to loosen up. Relaxing a muscle is actually more energy expenditure than contracting it. You have to pump things out instead of just letting things dump in. So relaxation is a skill that needs to be built. Um, most people walk around never knowing what it's like to be maximally tense. They don't know what it's like to relax, but they walk around in that middle gray zone they're somewhat tense all the time, and they can't relax. It's horribly inefficient. You made the joke many years ago, put on a pair of tight jeans and go upstairs. It's not going to feel the same as going up in your workout shorts. It's right. going to cost you more in order to do that. So when you're walking around in that semi-tight state all the time and wondering why you can't build efficiency or speed or power, it's because you don't know how to relax. Clear the baseline understand high tension techniques, get them to the kettlebell, uh, as in my opinion, as quickly as possible. Um, nail your programming, your lifestyle. Get the Indian clubs involved as a way to drop tension, keep speed, efficiency, joint health, and create a, a more holistic uh, program. Episode 48, a movement brief on pain relief. If you're drawn into these pain conversations, you got to realize you're getting ready to base a lot of your decisions on a symptom and 
to be a medical professional and to treat you just like I'd like somebody to treat my mom, I've got to have way more signs wrapped around your symptom so I can make objective things. Because just like Lee just said, two people with the exact same problem are going to express it two different ways. If I'm going for some opioids right now, I'm going to tell you my pain's this bad. If I'm stoic and don't believe in drugs, I'll tell you it's manageable. I'm telling you what you want to hear. You skin your knee bad enough, you get a piece of cake. Okay, here we go. So we've got a lot of altered behavior around pain. The second thing is uh, life is a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. You don't have to call that pain. That sometimes it's just uncomfortable. You have a hard day at work. You don't need to take an ibuprofen. You could sit in some Epsom salts in the bathtub, or you could just get an extra hour of sleep, and you might want to think maybe dehydration's part of that. We know dehydration's part of a hangover. How many people, you know, take the ibuprofen, but it's the <laughs> half a gallon you drink behind it that's probably helping just as much. So if we know what's causing your pain, do what you have to do. If you're hungover or shoveled snow for two hours and haven't been active this winter, we know where your pain's coming from. But when you're getting into this daily you know, when you're already making decisions and planning your day around your pain, and I can say that from personal experience, I've had quite a few orthopedic problems. I've had to deal with Lyme's disease. I've woken up and actually planned my day around how much pain can I take today. And that's a slippery slope. That can get you in, in a pretty bad place really quick. It'll get you out of shape and out of health really quick. And it'll also aim you at some behaviors you don't want to be at too long. So we, we got to all face this uh, at a certain point in your life. Part of what you're talking about, Gray, is, as you go through that is acute versus chronic. Because like, acute, if you're, you know, if you're active, there are going to be some times that you, you know, push yourself too far, go out and play a, a game of basketball, go out and play a round of golf, that whatever it is that you injure yourself, where you have an episode that you can say, that's what caused my, my ankle to hurt. I went up for a layup, rolled my ankle. I was playing tennis, I twisted, and, you know, whatever. That hurt my back. That's acute. Too often, the acute problem will go away, mm -hmm. but leads to a chronic problem somewhere else. And I think that's what's much more difficult to really map, as you talked about it, with your movements. Because, yeah, I'm coming in because my ankle hurts. I'm going to take my ibuprofen, get the swelling down. Two to three weeks later, my ankle feels okay, but it's not normal. And that ankle problem, lack of motor mobility, lack of motor control, will lead to a chronic issue in your back. And I think that's too often what we're dealing with. What the average person is walking around dealing with is those chronic little aches and pains that we have to map to, to really find out what's causing that. Yeah, and, and if you are already forward thinking and if you've, you've adopted a more active lifestyle, whether it be through exercise or just labor or whatever you're doing, you do realize if you drive a car more frequently, your routine maintenance schedule goes up, right? If you drive a lot, you're going to change the oil and check the fluids and belts and tires way more often. So there is a proactive responsibility when you're putting more miles on your car, more miles on your computer that you automatically assume. But when you start putting more miles on your body 
do we start eating right? Do we start sleeping more? Do we start hydrating? Do we start taking that downtime that is all part of that, that recovery cycle? And many times we don't. We just take the exact same friggin' lifestyle, add a third more physical stress, and then all of a sudden think we're going to look good in the mirror by Thursday. No, you're going to be hunched over and making a really ugly face in the mirror because you have added stress without being responsible. What, is the, what does the average person do in January, grade? They, they make the New Year's resolution to lose weight and get in shape. So what do they do? They start a diet and start exercising Yep. at the same time. <laughs> I want to drive faster and I want my car to get better gas mileage at the exact same time that's and possible, right? a couple of months later, they're having problems. Yep. They're injured. And they think that's normal. You needed a good trainer, and you're getting ready to meet a physical therapist or chiropractor. <laughs> so. But too often, people assume, and we have some data that, that we've seen over the years um, in a group of utility workers, that 70% felt it was normal to have pain at the end of the day. So most people walking around, one, a good portion of the population is, has some sort of pain, and a lot of people just assume that's just normal. That's the way it's supposed to be. Well, I'm older. These aches and pains are just normal. People learn to be active around the pain. Sometimes people are covering it up. Sometimes people are taping it and strapping it up. But I see another side to that coin. I have watched older individuals in our community have a pain episode, and they just get a smaller life. They just don't do as much, but they, it's such an incremental lessening of their physical life that if you don't see them for about five years, they age about 15 years. And so the two responses I see are reach for another cover-up, reach for another cover-up. I know people that if they don't get a massage every week, they're a wreck. And I'm like, really? Somebody else has to move your tissue around just so you can be comfortable in your own tissue? That's not right. It's just, it's not. So I see people slap a lot of supplements and medications at it, or I see them systematically walk a little bit slower, mm -hmm. take a little bit longer to get out of the car, avoid steps at all costs, take elevators whenever they can. Their life just gets smaller, and then all of a sudden they want to go to Disney World for four days, and they're going to be on a scooter. I hate to say it, but and, and it surprises people that they decline that quickly, and that's why I think there needs to be, just like we let dentists look in our mouth, even though we're flossing and brushing, they're still going to find something every now and then. These well physicals that we get, if they don't start having a movement component quick, we're going we're gonna to give a lot of people a pass that they're healthy. And all we're looking at is the same vital signs we came up with 70 years ago. There's new vital signs now. Episode 49, training for mud, miles, and adventure with Mike Diebler. Going back to the, the intake, where, where we're starting, because of an event like this, there are so many boxes to check, right? I, you need to be able to do a lot of different things. So uh, like looking, my, my skill, going back to how I was an athlete, I was a, a high jumper, right? I was very powerful, but very short duration. My strength was I take eight steps and then I jump over a bar and then I rest for like 10 minutes. You know, there's not you many lay sports. on a big fluffy mat for a while, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> and, and that was, that was it. So I had a lot of power. Um, so jumping over walls, uh, I can, you know, that was not a big deal. Cause I just run up to a jump over and I'm fairly tall, long reach. So, you know, looking at, I knew exactly, you know, starting with myself, cause I was just trying to train myself before I took on any clients on how to, how do you get ready for this? I can easily say, 
well, I know where I really am going to excel. So, you know, maintain that stuff, keep, keep going and doing what you're doing. That's just your natural ability. But I can see where I'm lacking. I went from, you know, uh, being that, that typical, you know, type two, you know, just power athlete to now you have to go run starting maybe a 5k, a 10k, a marathon. Like that was definitely not something I was, I was, you know, built to do and, and definitely had to train for. So I can start to see, I can excel here. I can, I can definitely make improvements here. Now I'm finding the opportunities where I'm going to have the most success. So when I started taking in clients, that's how I was looking at it, right? There's, you need, and that's why I love that. And I, why I think so many people love this sport because of all the different abilities your body should be able to do. And there's a good chance it, it doesn't do them all well. Now we can start to determine where can we get the most benefit from, from your training, right? Is it maybe you lack power? Is it that you lack that endurance? Is it um, all of the above, right? So you, maybe you're, this is just something totally new. So in that intake, it's it's really important to determine where their strengths are. And then obviously with an FMS background, if we don't move well, we're not going to really build any of those things on top of it. So we're going to check those boxes first. I want to make sure I understand, you know, is this is this just a basic you know movement problem? And we can start there. And now once I, I feel comfortable loading you up and, and doing these different things, now we can build off of that. You know, it's interesting, Mike, because I think what you just described, it is about finding that weak link. And I think, you know, obviously the FMS, you know, that's what we've always, you know, talked about since the late 90s. Is let's find out where your weak link is. Okay, put the FMS aside. When you're training someone, that's, you know, especially for something like this, that's really going to, you know, put their body through the, through the paces, um, finding out what they have to really focus on and shine that light on where their weakness is, is huge, really, really important at this level. And so you, you obviously do that, but do you still need to do some sort of training on the things that they're good at? Is the idea to say, all right, you're good at these things, let's maximize that so you can maybe get a little bit better and, and have like a, you know, in your, your things, whatever, jumping over objects or whatever it is, you can excel through those knowing you're going to lose a little bit on these other things. Yeah, I know no, that I mean, there was a lot there, but does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And I think a lot of it comes down to they probably enjoy those things too, right? So I don't want to take away, you know, for me, I love jumping. You know, you throw some plyometrics at me, some box jumps and all those drills. If you tell me don't do those anymore, you know, that's going to have an effect on on my mentality of, well, but I love doing those things, right? But I don't want to spend my whole workout jumping because um, I know that's already pretty good. Um, but I want to maintain it and I always want to get better at those things. So I think it's still a balance, right? I want to determine where you're good. Let's keep training those things. Where do we need improvements? And then, and then focus on there. And, and sometimes it has nothing to do with, with training, right? Another thing we have to look at is their recovery and their nutrition. And when I first work with an athlete, especially the ones that are working out a lot and they kind of have that more is better mentality, I'll tell them right off the bat, you know, I'm going to be your check, right? I'm going to keep your body in check. I'm going to keep your, um, you know, almost keep you out of your own way because people just have that idea of what I'm doing. I just need to do it harder and I'm going to get better. And I think that's the mistake most people fall into is there's so many different things we can focus on. You just have your eyes set on this one thing. And uh, hopefully I can broaden your, your picture a little bit on what we need to work on. When we're working with a group that's predominantly doing putting in the hours running or hiking or something like that, 
they're going to show with mobility problems because it's the way we consume these things. Now, um, I had a chance to talk to a guy named Eric Orton who trained Christopher McDougal when he was doing the minimalist running and running down in the Copper Canyon and stuff like that. He goes, the guy that built my sandals uh, was probably 10 or 12 years older than me, if I recall the way he's telling it to me, and squatted, deep squat, ass to grass, heels flat, while he was building my sandals for more than 10 or 12 minutes. That same guy beat me an elite runner the very next day in like a 50 miler or something like that. So the fact that we've got this authentic culture that runs without a name brand shoe, basically a piece of rubber tied to their foot and has not lost their deep squat, but yet we see the deep squat, whether it be for ankle mobility or core pelvic control issues, that's the first thing a lot of people who log high mileage lose. And I honestly think it's because we run unbelievably supported with footwear and on usually flat surfaces. And adventure races aren't that. <laughs> they're, exactly. they're, they're these uneven surfaces. And when you come at these things without that deep squat, that's an authentic signature that your body has less mobility. But you and I both know if we change that mobility really quickly and it comes back the next day and it's gone again, that's really a high tension person who's using a lot of compensation. Whereas if we can't change that mobility at all, they're sort of fixed there. So under that mobility problem is either layers and layers of tissue restriction or it melts away and comes right back. And I think that's a misappropriation of training time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you nailed it right there with so many and, and, honestly, myself included, relying on that almost lack of mobility as, uh, you know, a false sense of stability to help in certain cases. And, and, you know, sometimes it might get you through, through something, but it's, it's has all this has a cost and it, you might get away with it for a while. But one thing, if you want to compete in a sport like this long-term, and I think a lot of people who really get into it and enjoy it, um, they run into those problems where they're going to show themselves eventually episode 50 core surgery and its effect on movement i don't think general surgeons are considering going through that abdominal wall and orthopedic surgery and by orthopedic standards it may not be considered that way but when we look at what happens to the hips the balance and the low back after an abdominal surgery we're picking up risk factors Every well, time. Right. And, and the, the average person out there, not throw us in the average category, um, you may not think we're average, Gray, but, you know, pretty typically average here. I think um, pretty average. But here. when we go in, we're not thinking about, we're thinking about taking care of the hernia, in our case, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but if we talk about, again, the statistics say about a quarter of the people have had hernia surgery, most common abdominal surgery, general surgery, most common. Then you got appendicitis. Then you have gallbladder. Those are fairly common. So you're, again, talking about a fairly large percent of the population, and you're going in saying fix the problem, right? And you're not going in thinking, as you said, thinking about what's going to occur afterwards. And then you start getting back to your daily routine. Lo and behold, you forget about it. And then physiologically, there's a lot going on. You know, whether you have a, a you know, for me, going arthroscopically going through the belly button and having a few little pinholes in there. But underneath the skin, they're having to go and weave through a lot of fascia, and they're breaking through a lot of a lot of tissue to put, in my case, the mesh in. And what are you really losing? 
You know, you're talking about what happens, the person loses some rotation, but it's that proprioceptive input. It's what the, we all know now how much influence fascia has on the system. But you're really talking about a lot of neural input that you're losing, that you're breaking through. It's scarring down. And that's what you really need to go back and try to, and try to get back. If you're looking at the decline in somebody's movement patterns while they have the, the, the hernia or the pregnancy or whatever, and then we repair that, just like you said, the, you don't default back to normal software. You default back to the last software you used when you walked, which was a little bit of a limp, a little bit of a wider base, a little bit of a gait deviation, and poor balance. And that's a natural response to some type of injury in the body. And we'll use the hernia as the example, or even appendicitis. You know, the body is going to try to protect itself. It's going to decrease the amount of motion you have so it doesn't stretch out those structures. And the hernia is a great example because that's what's occurring. So your body's not going to want to allow you to stretch through it. So it's going to, and I'm not, I don't even want to use the word scar down, which that'll happen, but your brain's not going to let you move in that direction. And over time, that's going to create problems. And if you go two years like me and two years, you know, length of time like Matt, which I think a lot of people do because they just don't want to deal with it, they develop those poor movement patterns. And then afterwards, the brain goes right back to those poor movement patterns. I, I really think you could make a strong case to talk to a few of your general surgeons if you're in the line of rehab and just say, listen, let us just screen them. We don't have to do rehab on everybody that got an abdominal surgery, but wouldn't it be good to go back and look at the risk factors of movement patterns, asymmetries, and balance issues? Because this could either cause or complicate these things, but let's not assume that not lifting over 20 pounds for six weeks is gonna, is gonna fix this when there were probably a lot of problems that led up to this. Well, and the other thing, a lot of people, let's be honest, most people don't exercise, they don't eat right, they do all the things, all the risk factors that we know are out there. But a lot of these people coming out of these surgeries want to do better. And let's take advantage of that. And, and having that conversation with the general surgeon to say, listen, let's, let's try to prevent these from a reoccurrence. You know, you've had a few, you've had some reoccurrence, not that you're not exercising, but let's, pre, let's take a proactive approach. Let's not just give them, don't lift 20 pounds, a gallon of milk for six weeks, and then go out and play golf. There's a big gap right there. Don't lift 20 pounds, but yet, okay, after the six weeks, you can go and do whatever you want. Give them the opportunity to create a little bit of education so they know here are the steps to get you back to what we all as professionals really want, become more healthy. So maybe we do allow them to exercise a little better, give them these things of informa- pieces of information so they can you know, be a little bit more healthy than what they were when they're going into the surgery. Exactly. Two, two moves that are very old and very popular. Uh, first one is the oldest is sun salutation. It's pretty much done, you know, standing up and then bending forward, um, doing each hip individually, but basically you end up doing a negative push-up and then a press-up for extension. Getting your breathing right when you do that usually takes most people who don't know yoga two or three weeks. And I would, I would seriously challenge all of our listeners to go back to something as simple as you think a sun salutation is and do it correctly. It doesn't need to be done with a weighted vest on or anything like that. Find a good uh, video and follow that. But then if you look at the inverse of a sun salutation, 
you've got a Turkish getup. One is getting up from your back and the other is getting up from your belly. And if you simply embrace both those for what they are, okay, I honestly think a movement screen, an SFMA, and a Y balance test aren't going to be a big deal. And that's why the people that came before us probably didn't need nearly as much movement screening or integrity as, as we need today. But I've found that a lot of fitness professionals, when they simply challenge their mobility and stability patterns on a sun salutation with absolutely nothing but their body weight and a Turkish getup with very low weight in your hand, just enough so you can get up under it, find everything they need to work on for the next quarter of their training cycle. And, and the movement screen would point that out with crosshairs, but these two moves, one downward facing and one upward facing, cover 360 degrees of humanity. And one's probably over 4,000 years old and one's probably at least 400 years old. And, you know, it, it, it's right there in front of you. Give each one of them three or four weeks to, to sculpt you and, and you'll run into some barriers breathe through them, stretch through them, work through them. And you're going to, you're going to be four points better on a functional scale just by confronting these. Episode 51, a lifter's guide to movement. What are we really talking about? Is it lifting weight or weight lifting? Cause when you, t- when so you tell somebody off the street, I'm going to go weightlifting, they're automatically going to think about a straight bar, you know, the chalk lifting all this heavy weight. But really what you just described in the kettlebell world and other things, it is lifting weight. And, and there's a difference there that whether you're, it doesn't have to be the straight bar. You know, it doesn't have to be what right. traditionally people think about in the bodybuilding world, the old, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger going out to the Venice Beach and, and throwing around those weights. It's, it's different. And I think that's what people need to, need to start thinking about. Just, it's not necessarily what a lot of people, the general person considers as weightlifting. How many times have we made people stronger and actually made their movement worse? Because I think Occam's razor basically says, remove all unnecessary assumptions when you're coming at a problem. And the one assumption I saw everybody make who was lifting for the aesthetic, lifting for the strength, or lifting for athletic performance, they all assumed I move good enough. And without setting a baseline, none of them realized you probably made yourself a little bit bigger in the aspect of the mirror you're looking in, but you probably hurt your movement. And, and in most lifting cultures, like a kettlebell culture that has the Turkish getup built into it, or an Olympic weightlifting culture that has a lot of broom handle work built into it, you're not going to screw up your movement because it's going to be good when you lift and you keep revisiting that. But we just put on our headset, start doing curls in the mirror and wonder why we can't wash our back no more. Someone who's going to add resistance training on top of a, a significant asymmetry, a lack of mobility, wherever that lack of mobility. Poor posture, poor, poor balance, posture, poor coordination. Then, then you're setting yourself up for what we said in the previous part of that was 50% are going to get injured. Well, that's the problem is that two, two things that create a person that goes into resistance training, weight training that gets injured. One they are doing weight training on a foundation that's broken, i.e. mobility, stability, posture control, whatever, whatever it is. And two, they just don't know what to do. Exactly. Meaning they're going to go in and maybe they've got a good foundation, but maybe three weeks into it, their volume and intensity is all screwed up. Because what happens at about four to six weeks? You automatically get stronger. And what does that then make you do? Add volume, add intensity. What happens a few weeks later? You probably get hurt. Because you don't know, because the science 
and really I'd, I'd argue whether it's art or science. I'd almost say it's more art of a professional knowing how to create a very durable, high-performing individual. That's an art. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no science that says that. But what a professional should be doing and what a person doesn't understand, it's not, their, it's not that they should understand it, right? It's knowing how to recover, right? You've got you've to manage the recovery process. And that's what the average person does not understand, right? And that they can go on the internet, they can read all that, but that's where a professional brings to the table is the understanding that recovery. Obviously, you should not be adding resistance training on a broken person, whether they got a previous injury or whatever. But if they're good, knowing how to manage that recovery and knowing how to continue to increase in volume and intensity, that's the art. It's, it's hard to convince somebody that less is more, but we, the best strength coaches in the world do that every day. I was going to say, if you're, you're making money off of clients coming in, potentially, that's your profession. How do you even have that conversation about recovery? Well, well it doesn't mean they can't work out. They're going to, they're just not resistance training. So it's, it's, so if you're going to do resistance training two days a week, three days a week, what, again, based off all the goals a person wants, they should still work out. It's your job as a professional to know what's going to allow them to continue to increase. It's organizing that recovery and still packaging it up into something that they want to do. Yeah. And, and I, when I first entered sort of the fitness world, the sports medicine world, I used to watch trainers and coaches all the time. They bring in the weight room, introduce you to a few lifts. And then without explaining anything, whatever lifts you look bad in, they would assume that was the nutrient you needed. That was the screen. Everything, every exercise that presents difficulty for you is I'm going to get my mouth a little closer to your ear and just over-verbally coach the living crap out of this until you look good when I'm in the room. But you're still not going to look good when I leave the room because you don't even know why you're doing it. So there, there's something that you can do with resistance training that's very hard with anything else, and that's create awareness. Mm -hmm. But believe it or not, I think the first place to create awareness is in your carries, not in your lifts. A Turkish getup, I've said, is a carry. It's not a lift. The weight's already up. You stand up under it. A farmer's carry is a carry, not a lift. Yeah, you got to pick it up. But what happens in your walk and how quick you dump and what happens to your posture tells me a lot about the way you use your stability. And your stability is the one thing most people assume when they start strength training. We can make you stronger and we can make you a better lifter. But if under that is very poor stability, very poor joint integrity, very poor alignment under load, um, it's not going to end well. You're going to hit your plateau very, very quickly. And many of our early on functional exercises, and Tim Ferriss said this when he wrote The 4-Hour Body, I had him on chops, lifts, single leg deadlifts, and Turkish get-ups. He'd been exposed to kettlebell swings and extremely heavy deadlifts where if you don't have chalk on the bar, you're not lifting enough. And he said, I feel stronger after doing these than I have at any other time of my life. And it's in print. And it's because we gave him that fundamental stability that he had sort of hacked his way around. Because you can yank, you can pull, you can have bad lifts and still get through it. And unless you've got a really good coach there, they're just going to let you get away with it. Um, 
But I honestly think people just don't have time to get the body weight integrity and the functional stuff done. And, and movement screens are systematically declining right now. They're not going up. So you can almost 100% say if somebody's standing in front of you asking for resistance training information, they're already assuming that they move good enough to reinforce that with load. And they don't. People can get stronger in the weight room and not have fundamental stability. You can go in the weight room and you can lift, albeit you're probably doing it wrong, but you will see some positive results. But over time, that's where those stats become, become reality. Over time, that person who doesn't have the fundamental stability, who doesn't have the fundamental mobility, will get results. But if they continue that, that path and continue to increase the volume and intensity over time, they will break down, i.e., I can't tell you my previous career as an athletic trainer how many athletes would come in saying my shoulders hurt and my back hurts. Why? Because the day before or the last few weeks I've been lifting heavy. Mm -hmm. And that's because they don't have that fun, the fundamental platform to lay on top of it. When you feel that you bend over, you grab that weight, you grab that bar, the kettlebell, whatever, and it feels heavy, the art of becoming stronger is as much to do with technique as it is the said principle, meaning it is the systematic process of making the same weight feel light because instead of focusing on one muscle group or focusing on your anterior shoulder when you press, a press is a total body movement. You want to see? Squeeze your butt cheeks together more when you press, and all of a sudden the press got better. Now, we'll say it's your posterior chain, it's your fascial lines. You can think anything you want, but a whole body effort beats a partial body effort every day, all the time. Think that way from now on. So that'll do it for this season of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to like, subscribe, and check out all of our social media channels. Be sure to tune in next season. And remember, first move well, then move often. Quick disclaimer, opinions of host and guest do not represent the views or opinions of functional movement systems. Always consult your physician before beginning any exercise program. This general information is not intended to replace your healthcare professional.